Most companies that we come across underweight what machines can do. They undervalue having a platform orientation as opposed to a product orientation, and they're not sufficiently aware of the wisdom and the power of the crowds. So we do need to rethink and rebalance minds and machines, products and platforms, and the core and the crowd. From the MIT Sloan School of Management, this is Data Made to Matter. I'm Neil Hartman. The second machine age is here. Two MIT Sloan experts are mapping out our new digital future. It's starting with economic disruption and business turbulence and ends in a new world balance between man and machine. Eric Brynjolfsson and Andy McAfee are co-founders of the Initiative on the Digital Economy at MIT Sloan. Their new book, Machine, Platform, Crowd, provides a playbook for companies to harness the power of our new machine age. I spoke with Eric and Andy about the place of superhuman machines in our lives and how businesses can adapt to our brave new digital future. Eric, Andy, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So the machine age from the late 1800s to the mid-1900s was a technological revolution that gave us railroads, machinery and manufacturing, and electricity in virtually every home. You say that right now we're at the beginning of the second machine age, a new era that will fundamentally transform our lives and the structure of our economy. I know in my own life that smartphones, GPS, and digital files have changed how I live and work. What else is happening out there? What does it mean to be at the dawn of the second machine age? Well, first it's helpful to really make a distinction by what, how we're distinguishing these two eras. The first one was mostly about automating physical work. These powerful general purpose technologies you mentioned, like the steam engine, internal combustion engine, to a large extent electricity, automated our muscles and augmented them in many ways. Now we're in the early stages of using technology to augment and to some extent automate our brains, our thinking. And that's fundamentally different. If you think of how to transform the world, you need both a power system and a control system. You need both muscle and brains. For most of human history, people provided both of those roles. After the first machine age, machines increasingly did the muscle part. Now machines are beginning to do the mental part as well. And it's affecting a much broader set of jobs than before. It's also unfolding a lot more rapidly than it did before. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're seeing so much disruption. Eric and I have a great colleague named Bob Gordon who teaches at Northwestern. And he is, I think, the, the best and the most careful scholar about those previous waves of innovation that you described, about okay. what happened with the internal combustion engine and electrification and indoor plumbing. And Bob's point to both of us when we've debated him and when we've talked with him is essentially, are you guys sure that these digital things that you're so enamored of are as big a deal as the internal combustion and electricity. And Bob makes a really compelling case. These are transformative mm -hmm. for economies and for people's lives. Our standard of living improved remarkably in the wake of these technologies. So Bob throws down this gauntlet to us that says, are you guys sure about that? <laughs> and our response back to Bob is, yeah. For the very first time, we are interconnecting the majority of human beings with each other on the planet and with a decent chunk of humanity's accumulated knowledge. That's never, ever happened before. The second thing that's going on is because of all this crazy progress that we're seeing with machine learning, we finally have another, I think about it as a colleague, another kind of intelligence out there that can look at really, really tough problems 
and see things that we don't see and help us solve those problems. The only proof of that that you need is the fact that the world's best player of chess is a piece of technology. The world's best player of Go, the ancient Asian strategy game, is a piece of technology. As of a year or so ago, the world's best poker player is now a piece of technology. We are creating these systems that can go past our own knowledge, our own limitations, and take us into new territory. And so what I always try to say to Bob when I talk with him about this, I point out these two developments and I say, look, if you don't think these are a big deal as we head deeper into the 21st century, uh, you know, you really are a pessimist about digital <laughs> technology and I, and I have nothing for you. And have you convinced him so far? Uh, we'd have to ask Bob that question. We, we've had we've had extraordinarily productive debates. Both Eric and I have. I don't think we've convinced him. Yeah. to be fair, but but I, I think I do watch him in his daily life, and he loves all of these uh, pieces of machinery that you were describing. For so at least he's adopted them. Terrific. Are there lessons we can take from the first machine age about how this might play out? Well, there are certainly lessons. One lesson is that this is going to be a huge engine of wealth creation. That's what happened before. And I want to put that first and foremost, because too often people focus on some of the concerns. Mm -hmm. But there are concerns, too. Technology has always been destroying jobs. It's always been creating jobs. At one point, north of 90% of Americans worked in agriculture. Now it's less than 2%. They didn't all become unemployed. They were redeployed into other areas. Part of the reason they became redeployed is because we all took action as individuals, as organizations, as government. For instance, America really more or less invented mass public education, and that taught them the skills so they could work not just in farms, but in manufacturing and in retailing and services. We created social security. We rethought the tax code. Each of these transitions were quite transformative, and, and they were debated at the time. But the net result was not only a faster rate of wealth creation, the United States led the world, but also uh, a more equitable division of those benefits. Looking forward, we're going to have to make similarly big changes in our society. It's not enough just to sit back and let the technology rip and see what happens. The reason we've been successful in the past is that we've been proactive, again, as individuals, as governments, and as organizations. Right. If you want to go into a lot more detail, we have three chapters in our book where we lay out <laughs> a much more excruciating uh, list of specific recommendations. But the broad lesson, I think, is to be proactive about it and not assume the technology will take care of itself. I kind of prefer the term detail to excruciating with our, with our policy proposals. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with Eric. And there are other lessons from the first machine age okay. that I take forward. What we learn from the first machine age is when big technology transitions happen, the companies that are on top at the start of that transition are rarely the companies on top at the end of that transition. There is a huge amount of business disruption and turbulence that happens. And we think that pattern is absolutely going to repeat itself. And when we look at the extraordinary power of artificial intelligence and machine learning, the two of us become convinced there's a whole lot of disruption coming because some companies are going to realize the power of these new tools and how to harness that power. Right. And a lot of them, a lot of companies actually, I believe, are not even historically successful, well managed managed ones. So that's the pattern from history that I do think is going to repeat. So your new book, Machine Platform Crowd, looks at how people and businesses can start to adapt to a second machine age. You say that denial and determination to do business as usual is a sure way to kill a company. Let's start with machines. A few years ago, we were all amazed that the IBM Watson computer beat humans at jeopardy. How smart are machines compared to humans now? What can they do? 
Well, that word machine is really in a way shorthand for mind and machine, which is the great rebalancing we're talking about. And for that matter, product and platform, core and crowd are the other balancings we're, we're looking at. When you look at that first one, mind and machine, the thing to bear in mind is that there's a role for humans and there's a role for machines. Machines have unquestionably superhuman intelligence mm -hmm. in some dimensions. I mean, the trivial example is in arithmetic and, in, and as Andy mentioned earlier, in a lot of games of strategy. And so machines are already much better than us at more and more tasks. And just in the past five years, what's been remarkable to both of us has been how they've crossed thresholds that we thought would take a long time, like being able to see and identify images as well or better than humans, or being able to understand speech at near human levels. And these are largely because of some breakthroughs in machine learning. But the thing to bear in mind, we talk about in the book, is that there remain roles for humans in continuing to handle creative tasks. And the successful companies will be those that shift more of those areas where machines have strengths over to machines, but understand that it's not all or nothing. And that rebalancing is critically important. And as we've looked around, I personally think a lot of companies are underestimating it and they're walking around with some incorrect assumptions. Those assumptions include, we humans are the world's best communicators. And if you want to talk to a person and sense their mood and figure out what they want and give it to them, you have to involve a person in that work. I, I just don't think that's true anymore. A lot of us walk around thinking that we humans are still the world's best strategic thinkers or the best decision makers or the world's best at figuring out if the person sitting across the table is bluffing or not. I actually don't think any of those things are true anymore. The machines, just in the past few years, have gotten so much better, better than almost anybody was anticipating, and they're superhuman in a lot of these levels. Now, that doesn't mean, as Eric said, that the minds are irrelevant and that humans are now, you know, peripheral or marginal right. in, in the work that needs to get done. But I think we walk around with some arrogance about our decision-making ability that's actually misplaced. Okay. And in fairness, I think some of that arrogance comes from, from history, that 20, 50 years ago, it was much better for humans to make almost every kind of decision. And many of the people who've made their way to the tops of organizations, they learned from rules of thumb and from experience that that was the right way. They, as yeah. we sometimes jokingly call them, we, we, sure. they allocated the decisions to the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. <laughs> um, but now the world has changed. Yep. Technology has evolved, not just in terms of raw computer power, but better algorithms, and perhaps most importantly, a lot more data. And that means you need to adjust your, your trade-off. And it seems like people are perpetually kind of behind the curve because as they make the adjustment, the machines get even better. <laughs> and one of the reasons we wrote this book is we want to get more people to understand the power of machine intelligence and get ahead of the curve and be one of those companies that survives the transitions that Andy was describing. So I have to ask, do humans still have an edge on machines anywhere? For sure they do, absolutely. In fact, probably the most important edge is in just defining what the question is. What is the problem we want to go after? As the machines become more powerful, being able to define the question becomes the key uh, human superpower. Uh, as Pablo Picasso once said, computers are useless. They only give you answers. <laughs> and he was a little ahead of his time, but I think we're getting to that point where it, what really the value added is, is in adding, asking the questions. Sure. And, and there's another huge category of work where the people are going to be essential, and that is in 
tasks that have a social aspect to them, tasks where you're trying to negotiate or motivate or coordinate or persuade people, the machines are getting pretty good at reading our emotional states. And the joke that I use is, you know, the the best ones are already better than the average man at reading another person's (laughs) emotional state. And maybe they're approaching expert, you know, female level as well. But that doesn't mean that people want to respond to those machines in the same way that they would to a human being. I mean, part of it is that we just connect with other people in a way that we don't connect with machines or or even animals. Um, We're deeply wired with a couple hundred thousand years of evolution to pick up on the subtlest social cues. And if an android is is 99% of the way there, it's just creepy. It's creepy. It's, 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 it's called the uncanny valley. It's, it's actually worse than if it wasn't even that close. And uh, sometimes some people are like that too, I, I got to say. But if you get a person who's warm and connected, I mean, it lowers your uh, heart rate and sure. your blood pressure and you just feel more comfortable. And that's something for the time being, people are people and they have that advantage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Terrific. Let's look at the area of platform and products. Companies like Uber and Airbnb make a lot of money without actually owning cars or real estate. Their entire businesses are digital platforms. Is this another tech bubble, or is it a real new sustainable way for companies to operate? Well, there are definitely bubble components to it, but what we found when we did the research for this is that there's some really important underlying economic principles. And there's a reason that the five most valuable companies in the world today are all essentially platform companies, Mm -hmm. Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft all have huge uh, platform components to it. The good news is that it's not just those big five or other big dominant companies. And I think we'll see platforms in more and more industries. Because one of the things platform companies can do is they can solve some longstanding problems that have kept previous versions from growing quickly. And what they do is they put this very thin digital layer over the top of a lot of interactions, and that gives them the ability to monitor the interactions and in some cases to let people interact with confidence in a way that they couldn't before. So if I had come to you a decade ago and said, here's a huge company of the future, you're going to hop into a stranger's car (laughs) in a city you've never visited before, tell them where you want to go, And at the end, you're just going to hop out of the car and walk away. You'd have been laughed out of the room. That's ridiculous. Except that Uber and Lyft and the other ride-hailing companies are spreading all over the world incredibly quickly because they've solved a number of problems. They've solved the matching problem. How do you line up the driver with the passenger? They've solved the payment problem, so I'm not fumbling for foreign currency in a different country. Uh, I think most fundamentally, they've solved or largely solved that trust problem. Mm -hmm. And the way they do that is not just by background checks, but by having this reciprocal rating system and having very good monitoring over what's going on so that even though they're not perfect, they're very, very good. And most of the people that I've talked to feel much safer hopping in a, they're called TNCs, transportation network companies, hopping in a TNC ride in a strange city than hopping in a taxi cab. Right. And this is part of a broader platform strategy of uh, leveraging partners, creating an ecosystem. Uh, As you alluded to in your question, most of these platform companies don't own the assets that are becoming so valuable. Airbnb doesn't own the homes. Uber doesn't own the the cars. Um, But what they do is they enable other asset owners to be part of the ecosystem. And if it's calibrated just right, it can be enormously profitable. And it's obviously great for the consumers. 
Usually, usually it is. I think that when you have competition, it, it right. then, then the benefits go to consumers. You know, their interest is in maximizing profits. Right. So they're not in, they're only indirectly maximizing what's best for the consumer because that's what the invisible hand, as Adam Smith pointed out a couple hundred years ago, didn't get a Nobel Prize, but would have. <laughs> we should uh, give him. We should just comp <laughs> the guy. Yeah. <laughs> But but one of the things you, we, we want to maintain is is that kind of competitive marketplace, right. so that all that creative energy ultimately is pushing towards helping consumers. And by and large, mostly it is. In fact, mostly it's being helping consumers in ways that don't even show up in the GDP statistics. This is an important point because capitalism, in a lot of quarters, is getting a bad rap these days. Sure. And in machine platform crowd, Eric and I come down fairly squarely and say, no, capitalism is an engine of great benefit to people as long as there's actual competition and when you have capitalism without competition, you've got what's called crony capitalism, or you've got corporatism, or you've just got companies running away and making a huge amount of money that they don't really deserve. So we're kind of adamant that you want both strong incentives and all these aspects of capitalism, but you also want a really good rival out there. Right. So I'm much happier that Lyft and Uber both exist in the world. So let's turn to the third concept, the crowd. Digital platforms make it possible to reach massive amounts of consumers cheaply and for consumers to reach back. Often when we hear about the crowd, it's an angry Twitter mob. <laughs> but you say that companies can use it as a new way of engaging consumers. Tell us about General Electric and how they're leveraging the crowd. Well, GE did a really interesting experiment a little while back. And keep in mind, GE is one of the most successful companies of the industrial era. GE has a large staff of incredibly competent people in fields like engineering and marketing. And GE has a lot of cash in the bank. This is not a cash-strapped company at all. So we were kind of surprised when they reached out to a crowd and said, help us refine this home ice maker. And in, it's a special kind of ice maker that makes chewy nugget ice, which some people evidently adore. So GE reached out to a crowd and said, hey, help us refine this thing. That was interesting. Even more interesting was that they then put this thing up on Indiegogo, as opposed to striking a licensing deal with Lowe's or something like that. Right. They put it up on Indiegogo and they asked people to pre-commit money to ordering it. GE does not need that money. What they needed was the signal about what demand for this thing would actually be. And they got a lot of confidence when people all over the internet said, I would love a countertop nugget ice maker in my home. You know, here's my credit card number. So we found that a really interesting example of one of the core companies of the American economy, GE, realizing that this weird distributed crowd out there could help it with some of its really uh, central activities. Mm -hmm. You know, Bill Joy made that famous remark that most of the smart people in the world don't work for your company. And that's true for every company, including MIT. <laughs> the great thing is we now have a way of reaching out to all those other smart people across the planet who may have insights. And for that matter, many of them aren't even in the same field as you might think. Um, organizations like Kaggle have specialized in bringing together data scientists and experts from a diverse set of disciplines mm. who can come together sometimes for just a couple of weeks and solve problems that had uh, baffled the experts at a company for, for years. The craziest example that I came across was a study done by Kareem Lakhani and his colleagues. Kareem is a doctoral student at MIT, and he's okay. a colleague now at Harvard Business School. Mm -hmm. And he did this study about sequencing the genome of human white blood cells. Our white blood cells have a deliberately weird genome okay. because they have to fight so many different kinds of enemies. They kind of have to scramble their genome on the fly to fight whatever is in our, in our system at the time. And 
sequencing it is really difficult. So instead of relying only on the National Institutes of Health or Harvard Medical School, they opened it up to a two-week contest on a coding platform called TopCoder. And they got about 150 people to propose solutions. The best of them were easily 10 times better than anything that the core had come up with. And they ran on the order of 10 seconds as opposed to one hour or four hours. The total prize money for the contest was $6,000. And so I read that and I couldn't believe it. We called up Kareem and said, hey, are you you cherry picking? Is this the most crazy thing you've ever seen? And he said, no, it's about average. You know, if I run a contest and don't see this magnitude of improvement, from the crowd, I think I've done my work incorrectly. So what steps do business leaders need to take to adapt and thrive in our new technological world? The most fundamental one is to think about these three rebalancings. Most companies that we come across, I believe, are too fond of minds and human decision ability. They're too product-oriented, and they place too much emphasis on their core, their core capabilities, their core competencies, their core processes. And they underweight what machines can do, They undervalue having a platform orientation as opposed to a product orientation, and they're not sufficiently aware of the wisdom and the power of the crowds. So our point in the book is not that minds, products, and the core are obsolete. Absolutely not. But we do need to rethink and rebalance minds and machines, products and platforms, and the core and the crowd. You know, that sometimes it seems like there's so much chaos out there. These companies are coming out of nowhere and become billion-dollar companies with a dozen people. Right. Other titans have disappeared and gone bankrupt. And, well, it seems like there's no rhyme or reason to it. The good news is, is there are some real clear underlying principles that take crazy strategies and sometimes show that they're really sensible. Other times, crazy strategies really are crazy, right. and you have to be able to differentiate That's which right. is which. It doesn't always work to have a machine make all the decisions, but sometimes it does. It doesn't always work to have the crowd take over for you. But if you understand the underlying principles, I think you'll have a playbook that you're much more likely to be successful. I say playbook, not really cookbook, because I, I don't think that this gives you all of the answers, because the world will continue to evolve. But if you understand these strategies and the underlying economics um, involved, I think you're in a better chance to succeed. So you've gotten the word out about the second machine age, and you're guiding business leaders through adapting to our changing economy. What's next for you and your work? A a long vacation? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'm afraid that's not what's next. What's next is getting the word out about this, because we think we have a very compelling story here, and we would love to see more companies and organizations and executives understand the story we have to tell. And and we think it would make the American economy better, it would make the world economy better, it would be better for consumers. And the faster we move forward with this new aspect of economics, the more likely that we're all going to be that much more successful. So we can uh, eliminate a lot of unnecessarily uh, chaos and trial and error if people understand these principles. So we're going to spend a little bit of time getting the word out. Uh, We're going to be teaching it in our MBA classes. We encourage others to teach it in their classes. And then after that, we'll take a long vacation. Terrific. Andy, Eric, it's been great speaking with you. Neil, thanks very much. Thanks. It's been great. Eric Brynjolfsson and Andy McAfee are co-founders of the Initiative on the Digital Economy here at MIT Sloan. Their brand new book is Machine, Platform, Crowd, Harnessing Our Digital Future. You can buy the book at your local bookstore or online at Amazon. Data Made to Matter is a production of the MIT Sloan School of Management. We are committed to bringing together MIT's intellectual resources to help managers invent the future. 
You can learn more at sloan.mit.edu. If you like our show, please subscribe. You can leave us ratings, comments, and questions on iTunes. I'm Neil Hartman. Thanks for listening to Data Made to Matter.